Good afternoon. We're ready to begin our next panel. I'm Clark Neely, Vice President for Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. I'll be moderating uh, this panel on uh, three cases that are um, interesting in, the, in, in sort of what they didn't say as much as what they did say. Um, they don't necessarily fit together uh, all that well, but I think they're, um, if I had to figure out a theme, the cases um, are the, uh, the cell site location, CATS, uh, Fourth Amendment case, um, the gerrymandering case, uh, and the travel ban cases. And um, my sense of the cases is that one way to describe them would be uh, almost the Supreme Court uh, praying that the other branches would actually exercise uh, some political acumen and, and willpower. Uh, another way of thinking of it, if you're a parent like I am, is if I have to stop this car and come back there, you guys are all going to be very sorry. Uh, and uh, I'd like to introduce our uh, wonderful uh, panelists, and uh, then we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, we're going to start with Josh, right? Josh Blackman, who is a professor at South Texas College of Law. Uh, he is a former uh, law clerk to Judge Danny Boggs on the Sixth Circuit uh, and Kim Gibson on the Western District of Pennsylvania. Um, he is, um, it's kind of traditional to say that so-and-so is a prolific author. Um, he is, in fact, an extraordinarily prolific author uh, for someone who hasn't been in the academic game uh, that long. He's written, arguably, the seminal book uh, on the, uh, uh, the Obamacare case um, and basically just never stops. Um, but Josh will be talking to us about uh, the so-called travel ban cases, which hopefully will stop uh, one day. Uh, next uh, will be Trevor Burris, who is a research fellow here um, at Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies um, and the managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which hopefully all of you uh, have handy and perhaps one also for friends. Um, <laughs> Trevor is also the co-host of Free Thoughts, which is a weekly podcast that I highly recommend that covers topics in libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. Uh, Trevor has his BA in philosophy from the University of Colorado at Boulder and his JD from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, Trevor will be talking to us about the CATS cell site location information cases, um, or as I like to think of them, um, can the government um, track you uh, every step you take without a warrant uh, every time technology uh, moves forward? And it's a somewhat open question, but hopefully not. <laughs> And then finally, our own Walter Olson, who is a senior fellow uh, at, uh, also in the Center for Constitutional Studies uh, and the author of several wonderful books, including The Litigation Explosion, The Rule of Lawyers, The Excuse Factory, and Schools for Misrule, uh, will talk to us about, um, I think in some ways, one of the most interesting cases of the term, um, simply because of what it, it tells us maybe about what the court can and can't do. Uh, it it's, uh, was a pair of cases, actually, one out of Wisconsin and one out of Maryland, involving this sort of perennial issue uh, of gerrymandering and the question of uh, whether there are any really judicially administrable limits on the persistent desire of the party in power to stick it to the party out of power. Uh, and uh, that seems like a, at least somewhat relevant question for us to consider uh, in the current environment. So thank you to uh, the three panelists. And Josh, if you would kick us off. Thank you so much to Clark and Trevor and Wally. I'm on the quasi-Cato panel. I basically work here, but I don't get paid. Uh, so that's Ilya's a, a blessing, the best unpaid intern he's ever had. Um, uh, my topic is the travel ban. And I have to admit, this topic is a bit bittersweet for me. This is my third entry to the Cato Supreme Court Review. 
The first was back in 2010 with McDonald of Chicago. Uh, Trevor and Ilya were there, and Alan Gurr is in the house somewhere in that one. We were the authors. Um, that piece was sad, right? We had urged the court to use the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause to extend the 14th Amendment to the state. How many votes did my position get? Just one. Just, just Justice Clarence Thomas, who was correct without any doubt in my mind. <laughs> he usually is correct. But I was sad, saying, Scotus, why don't you listen to me? Okay, fast forward to 2015. And we have the case of Texas versus United States. This was the constitutionality of President Obama's immigration executive action. Once again, Ilya and I wrote some briefs in that case. And we argue that President Obama's actions violate the take care clause of the Constitution. Another obscure provision, right? No one cares about it anymore. How many votes did our position get? Well, zero, because the court split four to four. And they affirmed, although I'm convinced had Justice Thomas had the chance to write, we would have gotten maybe one more vote. Yet, here I am today, talking about Texas, I'm sorry, Hawaii versus Trump. In which case, the Supreme Court upheld President Trump's travel ban. I didn't follow any briefs in this case. I wrote a number of articles about it. And the position I espoused got five votes. So why am I not so happy about it? Why is this bittersweet? Because I think the travel ban was an awful policy. It was callous. It harmed people. It divided families and friends without any legitimate conceivable national security justification. I'll say that, I've said that now for the last two years or so. But then why did I write so much about it? Because the law, to quote Dickens, is sometimes an ass. And very often the law leads me to places that I'd rather not go. And were I in Congress and had my ability to pass laws, as Clark says, I would take discretion away from the president and immigration. I think the president has way too much discretion in immigration and in healthcare and in welfare and in national security. And just go down the line, just go to every floor of Cato, every division of Cato, and say, what discretion would you like to remove and give it back to the lawmaking branch? I'd like to revive the non-delegation doctrine. I think the travel ban probably runs afoul of Schechter Poultry. Maybe, I'm close on that one, but I think it probably does. But then why was I so insistent on defending the travel ban? Because, perhaps call me naive, I believe in neutral principles of law. I believe they do exist. And if Congress passes a statute that says the president can suspend entry to aliens he deems detrimental, then the president can suspend entry to aliens he deems detrimental, and that's the end of the story, right? There are statutory issues, which I can perhaps talk about during Q&A. There's also constitutional issues about the Establishment Clause. But the basic issue is this, for a very long time in our polity, Ooh, my timer never started, Clark. This is not good. Uh-oh. Oh, they just started it now. Oh, okay, so just, they're winding the clock down, I see. But in our polity, we have certain prerogatives which we give to the president, which he can exercise. And it's not the province of judges to dismantle the authority that the duly elected president has. And that, in large measure, is what motivated me and I think my good friend Ilya uh, about this. In the immediate aftermath of President Trump's inauguration, he signed what became known as Executive Order uh, 1.0, just called 1.0, the first version. This was basically drafted in the back of a cocktail napkin. Uh, Ilya calls it what, the, the Stephen Miller special? I know it's jokes. Ilya calls it the Stephen Miller special. This was not a well thought out document. 
it should never have been issued. And I'm convinced if they had just skipped 1.0 and went right to 2.0, we would have never had the sort of massive resistance that we saw. Okay? But what happens? Almost immediately after the first version of the travel ban was signed, district judges swept into action. Now, the first raft of judgments I think were correct. There were people with green cards, which is basically a license to enter the United States, were being denied entry. You can't do that. So people who were basically locked in airports would be released under what's habeas corpus. I think those were correct judgments. But then it went a little bit further. You had one judge in Seattle who entered a nationwide injunction against the president's order. And he did this with, I'm not joking, about two or three sentences worth of analysis. There just wasn't anything there. No analysis of the Constitution or the statute. He just said, I'm going to preserve the status quo. Um, if you're a district court judge and you want to enter with basically a global injunction against the president exercising his constitutional authority, you need more than that. Youngstown, go look at the district court opinion. That was, a, that was an opinion when the court actually said that Truman can't seize the mills. There was actually law in there. But in the initial round of this litigation, there wasn't much. And it went downhill from there. Um, a lot of these judges uh, uh, made rulings I think are very difficult to justify on statutory grounds. I know Cato has a little bit of an internal civil war on, on these questions, which I'll put aside because now it's in the past. Uh, but ultimately, not a single justice in the Supreme Court actually bothered to defend the statutory arguments. Not even Justice Sotomayor. She said, well, the constitutional issue is so easy, we'll just skip the statutory questions, which I think gets it backwards. But what happened over this period, I think, is a reflection that the judiciary viewed Donald Trump as a dangerous president. And I probably agree with them. Uh, I didn't vote for him. I don't plan to vote for him again in a couple of years. But they had this reaction to him that I think was not justified in any way, shape, or form. And the fact that the Supreme Court upheld this on a five to four basis, I think reflects this fact, uh, that, that, the, that the lower courts were somewhat out of their leagues, and they were mistaken. Okay? Now, I got that out of the way, right? That's I think the travel ban, in an essence, you have a poorly executed policy by a president who's shown overt bias towards Muslims, and he has, we can't deny that. But because of the legal framework we have, those uh, statements and those positions do not disqualify him from exercising the power that he has. And that's really all there is to it. Um, Chief Justice Roberts's majority opinion makes his point very plainly where he says, this case is not only about this president, but it's about the presidency. And the second, I was in the court when he said this, the second Roberts said, this is about the presidency, I'm like, okay, I know this is gonna go, there's no more surprises. Roberts always is surprised till the bitter end. But I knew at that point how this was going to go down. So what I'd like to do in my remaining time, however they, they count this clock, is um, walk through what I think are some of the issues that are still lingering in the case. You can read my review piece to get the details of the case, but I want to talk about what issues are still open because Trump versus Hawaii left a lot of issues that were frankly not resolved, okay? One is what happens next. These cases were appealed to the Supreme Court on what's called a preliminary injunction. And for our non-lawyer friends, that's uh, uh, an early stage appeal, right, where the court says, we're going to put this on hold for now, and maybe we'll have a trial or some sort of other summary judgment later down the road. We don't have that yet. So this case goes back to district courts in Hawaii, 
and in Maryland who were overtly hostile to the Trump administration. They, they, they rolled against them several times over and over again with the same exact opinions, version one, two, and three. What happens after the remand? Well, as lawyers know, there's something called discovery, right? Discovery is a very powerful litigation tool. And what discovery means is we ask the government to produce documents. And the documents will show how the travel ban is being implemented. Why is that relevant? One of the key issues that came up in the Supreme Court's argument was the availability of so-called waivers, right? If someone has a hardship, can they be exempted from the travel ban and allowed into the country? And the Trump administration said, yes, we have all these waivers, and this shows we don't hate Muslims because we're letting all these people in through the hardship exemption. Justices Breyer and Kagan wrote a separate opinion. He said, well, we don't know about that, right? There's evidence these waivers are not being issued. And if you're not giving waivers, maybe this is a Muslim ban. So the discovery may or may not show that the waivers have been given in a fair manner. Um, if anyone from the Trump administration is listening, give out waivers, right? There's no reason to be stupid about that. Oh, well, here we are. Uh, I, I digress. Uh, but don't screw this up. Give out the waivers and then show it. But they're going to fight over discovery. So I don't think that, that issue will go anywhere. But it could show that uh, some of the statements made to the Supreme Court by the Solicitor General uh, could not have been wholly accurate. And that could, be a, that, could, that, that could come back to bite them in the butt. Um, the second issue is how the Supreme Court should treat President Trump. Uh, like him or not, I think if we take a poll in this room, it's not. Uh, he's got two years left, I think. Yeah, two years left. Um, we have a lot more to go forward. And I think the most important effect of the travel ban ruling is a signal to the lower courts that you have not been treating this president in the correct fashion as you should have been treating him, right? Um, Robert Barnes, who writes for the Washington Post, had a great headline on the eve of the travel ban arguments. He wrote, in travel ban case, Supreme Court considers the president versus this president. The president versus this president. And I think Roberts' majority opinion shows this, you know, the president, just as a general institution from person to person. And indeed, Justice Kennedy, in his swan song, as it were, wrote a very strong defense of executive power, where he said there's certain areas where the executive has broad discretion, quote, discretion free from judicial scrutiny which signals that there are certain spheres where just courts are not going to check the president. Um, what does this mean? I don't think it means very much. I'll tell you why. Trump against Hawaii arose in a fairly unique context where the president was denying entry to aliens from other nations. That's a very specific area where the government's power is at its apex. But in other contexts involving domestic matters, for example, DACA, um, the, trans, uh, the transgender troop ban, right? Name your list, firing special counsel, who the hell knows, right? These are all domestic areas where the president doesn't have the same sort of foreign power prerogatives. So I don't think the sort of deference that President Trump got in the, the Hawaii case necessarily translates elsewhere. But at a minimum, and I, I say this very clearly, the district judges should at least take cognizance that the Supreme Court wasn't willing to go down that road, right? You can imagine a situation where President Trump had this case, and then Justice Kennedy wrote an opinion about how the travel ban denies dignity to people. You could see it, right? I mean, we go write that opinion ourselves. Trevor could write over lunchtime, right? That the travel ban denies dignity to immigrants, right? 
Can you imagine what that would have done to our polity? The district courts have open season on Trump, right? They could have just struck down everything he did. So I think at least this decision lowered the temperature, to use Jack Goldsmith's words, just lowered the temperature a bit against President Trump. There's a third issue, and this one I think is not resolved at all. How does the Constitution apply to aliens outside the United States? And Trevor's nodding, which means I think I'm on the right track, right? This is a huge question. There was a case a couple of years ago at the court called, uh, court called Hernandez versus Mesa. This was a, a, a really heart-wrenching case where you had a, a, the federal border agent basically fired a bullet across the U.S. border into Mexico and killed a person. Totally unjustified, right? There was, there was no cause to kill this person, and he shot him. The Supreme Court was not able to get a good resolution on that case. I think Justice Scalia was out at that time. He was no longer on the court. So does the Constitution apply to an alien who gets seized, that is by a bullet, uh, who's standing on the other side of the border, right? We know the Constitution does not protect aliens outside the United States from searches, but what if they're right on the border and the, uh, and, and the bullet crosses over? But what about the alien merely seeking entry, right? Does a person have any sort of right to enter the United States? Can the government have a power to exclude someone from the United States. Ilya Soman, my good friend and former professor, has written that the federal government has no power of immigration. I have a response from coming out soon. I think he's, he's mistaken. But whether there's a power, is there a right of aliens for free movement and the ability to enter? Then the third question is, what happens once you're in the United States? We know the Constitution protects aliens in the United States. They get due process. But what processes do to aliens in the United States? Right? Immigration is considered a civil enforcement matter, not a criminal enforcement matter. So there's no counsel attached to it. They don't get a jury trial. And they don't have the same panoply of rights that you would have in a domestic, run-of-the-mill civil proceeding. So I think at some point, the courts are going to have to address the scope of the rights of aliens as a constitutional matter. Because if President Trump wins re-election, I think we'll see more aggressive uh, uh, executive action to go after immigrants in different contexts with no legislation, no wall. He can focus on those already here. The fourth issue uh, focuses on Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in the Trump case. What is the scope of the president's Article II inherent power to exclude aliens? Now, what does inherent mean? It means unenumerated. Now, in this building, when we say inherent, we think of the Ninth Amendment, right? Unenumerated rights. Well, guess what? There are also unenumerated powers. Now, you don't like to agree with that, but they do exist. And the court has recognized that the executive has certain prerogatives that come from the King of England. The commander in chief doesn't tell us very much. The executive power doesn't tell us that much. And the court has actually held that the president has an unenumerated inherent power to exclude aliens. In other words, had Congress never enacted the statutory framework President Trump still could have denied these aliens. Now, Justice Thomas wrote an opinion where he endorsed that. I think as an original matter, that's not correct, and my response to Soman addresses this. I think there's a, a, a very good precedent that's up to Congress and not the executive to deny entry, but I'll table that for another moment. But I think President Trump will use whatever inherent powers he has to perhaps push the boundaries of immigration enforcement. Um, the last issue, which may have come up earlier, concerns our favorite remedy, the nationwide, no, no, 
the global, no, 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 no. The cosmic injunction. I gotta get the right geographic scope. I keep going nationwide, global, cosmic, right? Just as Gorsuch called the cosmic injunction. I like it, I think it's cute, it sticks. Now, the problem with those injunctions is not their geographic scope, right? If I wanna sue the federal government and a federal agent can go from DC to Texas, I wanna hit him wherever he is. So there's no problem with binding a federal agent who goes from one state to another. The problem is that they're binding parties who are not part of the judgment. That's the risk, right? Where our judgments are being extended, not just to those in front of the court, but to all plaintiffs. And I think at some point, either the Supreme Court will reign in this practice, or Congress will reign in this practice. But the idea that a single judge can make the federal government immediately stop a policy globally, forcing a rush to the Supreme Court to get an emergency stay is not sustainable. I don't think there's any problem in the abstract with a nationwide injunction, but I think they've been abused in certain cases, specifically sanctuary cities. If you have a city in place, you don't need a nationwide injunction, but I think the court will address that. With 17 seconds left with my Jerry Rig clock, I'll stop. Clark, thank you so much, and Trevor and Olaf Wally, look forward to your speeches. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Now, Are you under surveillance this time? Yes. I, I could take a page from Joe, Joe Bishop, Joseph Bishop Hinchman, who here has a cell phone on their person right now. Or actually, who doesn't? <laughs> you? Okay. All right. <laughs> the only man in this room who the government does not know where you are. Well, not really. <laughs> Uh, thank you to Clark. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-author, James Knight. Is he here? Did he have to go back to school? He was an intern in the summer uh, who helped me a lot to produce this article on Carpenter v. United States. I'm going to take out my cell phone and put it over here so the drones don't know where I am. Um, <clears throat> Now, if you do have a cell phone on you and it's currently turned on, it is currently pinging various cell towers and site location data all around us. Through that pinging mechanism, the cell, your cell phone company is able to roughly know where you are. They can't be like, oh, you know, second row, like three from inside, but probably could put you roughly within the Cato Institute or at least the block. Uh, Carpenter v. United States arose around the question of whether or not the government needs to obtain a warrant before getting that information from your cell phone provider, which requires a subpoena under the Stored Communications Act. Timothy Carpenter was hoist by his own cell phone when he took part in a series of robberies of radio shacks. I was like, really? I mean, <laughs> did you want one of those remote control cars that's on a string? Is that what you, really what you wanted? Um, and uh, T-Mobile stores, uh, the chief even noticed, ironically enough, uh, and suspects gave up his name to the FBI, and the cell site location information, CSLI, as it's uh, referred to throughout the opinion, was during a four-month period, uh, the request resulted in the government obtaining 12,898 location points, cataloging Carpenter's movements, an average of 101 points per day. Carpenter was convicted and sentenced to more than 100 years in jail. Now, if you follow the Fourth Amendment much, you'll realize that over the past 10 years in particular, we've had many questions come up about the interaction of Fourth Amendment and technology. Uh, in 2012, we had a case come up, U.S. v. Jones, which is the question of whether or not when the government agents attach a GPS device to your car and track your movements for a, about a month, they need a warrant for that. The court ruled that they did, uh, but because of the attachment. 
the, the trespass to the vehicle that occurred upon attaching the GPS tracker. And in Riley v. California in 2014, the Supreme Court was asked whether or not they need a warrant to search your cell phone after an arrest. You, you know, you have the standard thing, you go to the police department after you get arrested and they tell you that they search for your weapons and stuff. The question is whether they can also search your cell phone and the Supreme Court ruled that they need a warrant for the cell phone and Chief Justice John Roberts, in that opinion, uh, strongly discussed how important our cell phones are to us now and how much information about us are in those cell phones. So you could look at Carpenter v. United States as a confluence of these two cases. A, your cell phone, very important, keeps a lot of data, but tracking your locations, but it doesn't have the attachment element because you attached your cell phone to you, and if you have teenagers, they're bonded directly to their skeleton. <clears throat> so in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence since 1967, we've had a case called Katz v. United States, which basically determines all of our discussions about the Fourth Amendment with some little caveats. Uh, Katz dealt with the question of whether or not we were going to bind the Fourth Amendment to property rights, and this specifically was whether or not the government could put a listening device onto a phone booth and record that conversation without the warrant. In an opinion, it was said that the, that the, uh, the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places, and therefore decided that they were going to refashion the definition of a search to be the reasonable expectation of privacy test. Now, this might sound strange to anyone who has ever used the word search in common parlance and did not mean reasonable expectation of privacy, but for the non-lawyers in the room, the big question in the Fourth Amendment is when does the Fourth Amendment apply? And it applies by the terms of the Fourth Amendment when police and law enforcement and other government agents have performed a search. So what does that mean? What Katz told us, at least one definition of a search, is when they violate your reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, what that also gave us was something called the third-party doctrine. Third-party doctrine seems to follow inevitably from the reasonable expectation of privacy test, saying that if you give up your information to a third party, it is now theirs and not yours, so you don't have any expectation of privacy in that information. This includes trash on your curb. This includes your bank records. This includes the numbers that you dial on your phone and a few cases decided in the 70s. This all, of course, seems quite problematic now because the amount of information on that device held by third parties on all of us is quite vast seems to violate the basic premises of the Fourth Amendment, which the government shouldn't be able to, without a warrant, find out everything about me, which basically they could if their third-party doctrine stays in place and does not protect my Google information and things like that. This is something that's been pointed out for a while, and that's sort of the question that came before the court in the Carpenter case. Now, the chief, I'm going to Go over a little bit over Chief Justice John Roberts' majority opinion, which was Chief Justice Robert writing with the four liberals, Kagan, Breyer, Sotomayor. Uh, but uh, I'm going to focus more on Justice Neil Gorsuch's very, very interesting dissent, which is what our article in the Cato Supreme Court Review focuses on. His very interesting dissent uh, mirrors many points that we made in our brief for the Cato Institute, which was written by my former colleague Jim Harper, who's been pushing this for quite a while. But Justice Gorsuch and his dissent, he also wondered why is it the case that under current Fourth Amendment law, the government apparently can, quote, demand a copy of all your emails from Google or Microsoft without implicating your Fourth Amendment rights, can it secure your DNA from 23andMe without warrant or probable cause? Smith and Miller say, yes, it can, at least not without running afoul of cats, but that strikes most lawyers and judges today, me included, as pretty unlikely. Now, it seemed to strike Chief Justice Roberts as pretty unlikely, but it's not exactly clear why. Chief Justice John Roberts, with the possibility of maybe overturning the third-party doctrine or overturning Katz, which would be 
a huge move, but something that I think is warranted for things I'll discuss in a moment, uh, with the possibility that decided to try and fit cell site location information somewhere in between the third party test and the reasonable expectation of privacy. And how he does that is not exactly clear, and the doctrines that we get out of that is not, are not exactly clear. He wrote, uh, he wrote a sort of balancing test, what Oren Kuros called the equilibrium adjustment theory of the Fourth Amendment. This technology has enhanced our government's capacity to encroach upon areas normally guarded from inquisitive eyes. This court has sought to assure preservation of that degree of privacy against government that existed when the Fourth Amendment was adopted. He ends up deciding that cell site location information is a unique type of information that is different than bank records and different than numbers that you dial on a phone. Uh, a unique, he says, new phenomenon, qualitatively different from telephone records and bank records and has a unique nature. And therefore, he creates a narrow holding, in his own words, that cell phone location data of a certain sort is a special case worthy of a special protection. And thus, the government must obtain a warrant um, from, uh, to obtain that in most cases. Now, what does that all tell us? Well, I'll read you Robert's, what I call the Heller paragraph. I don't know if Alan's in the, uh, in the room right now, but in Heller decision, there's a paragraph that says, we're doing this, but we're not touching types of guns, prohibitions on people who own guns, where we're gonna go with our guns, sensitive places, all that stuff. That's what all the litigation over Heller. Here's the Heller paragraph from Carpenter. We do not deserve the application of Smith and Miller, those are the third party cases, or call into question the conventional surveillance techniques and tools such as security cameras, nor do we address other business records that might incidentally reveal location information. Further, our opinion does not consider other collection techniques involving foreign affairs or national security. So all those things that you're worried about, maybe them snooping on you and knowing where you are, doesn't touch any of them. Uh, the actual holding of the case, uh, I think as it was typified, I don't know where I have it, by, by Justice Gorsuch, uh, is that you sometimes, all we know is that historical cell site location information, for seven days anyway, escapes Smith and Miller's short, grasp, while a lifetime of bank or phone records does not. As to any other kind of information, lower courts will have to stay tuned. So when I first saw the opinion, I was a little bit befuddled by the scope of it, by the reach of it, and lower courts are chewing through it. We haven't seen a lot of decisions at the appellate level applying it yet. I, I looked at a bunch of them this morning. We have most of the sites coming off of this case are people having their case reconsidered and remanded in light of the decision in Carpenter case. But what Justice Gorsuch does in his dissent, so Justice Kennedy dissents, Alito and Thomas join that dissent. He says, no, 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 the, the third party doctrine under the, under the reasonable expectation of privacy test, it doesn't have any balancing aspect. Like Justice, Chief Justice Roberts decides he's gonna balance this, the value of this information against the level of the intrusion, but that's never been in the test. So we can't really do that. Just as Thomas dissents joined by no one to say he didn't own his data, the cell phone provider did, and the Fourth Amendment protects what you own and therefore there was no search. But he also writes to say that I think Katz is crazy. It doesn't really instantiate the text or the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment and should be revisited. Justice Alito writes to send separately to say that this undercuts and, and puts into danger our subpoena power issue, our subpoena issues and the interaction between asking someone to search through their own records and give it to the government versus searching the government searching through the records and says this will throw many things into disarray. But Justice Gorsuch writes separately to say Look, 
I think that the chief didn't do a good job of applying what our existing precedents are for the third party doctrine. So we should be asking ourselves, should we throw out the third party doctrine or maybe we should throw out the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And then he, con he continued to say, let's think about maybe why we should throw out the reasonable expectation of privacy test and offered five points about an alternate way of looking at the Fourth Amendment. And that's what the, the second half of our article deals with. That alternate way of looking at the Fourth Amendment is sort of the positive law or property rights concept. Let me ask you guys a question. Let's say that you got a new drone for Christmas, a shiny new drone with all the, the HD cameras and stuff, and you, pick, you decide to grab it, and you decide to fly it over to your neighbor's house because he's always had this greenhouse that you wanted to know what was in the greenhouse. So you fly the drone over the greenhouse, and you look into it with all the high-definition cameras. Uh, does that seem like something that you shouldn't do and it's probably illegal? Probably for most of us, and, and it depends on the state, but it's, uh, states are playing with the definition of where people are allowed to fly their drones. Here's another one. Let's say you have a colleague, and you've always wondered if, if he's of South Asian de uh, descent. I'm not sure why you always wondered that, but you've always wondered it. So you take a coffee cup that he used one day, you send it to 23andMe and bring back his DNA report and walk up to him, creeping him out and saying, look, I found out you're South Asian. Does that seem like something strange that you probably shouldn't be doing? And, and if it does, in many states actually are passing laws about surreptitiously collecting DNA from other people. Uh, and we, but what of course happens when law enforcement comes into play is that they can do both of those things without a warrant. Uh, they can fly helicopters over your house and look into your backyard and they can collect your DNA as we saw in the Golden State Killer case uh, to just without a warrant and collect it. Now, the basic view of the positive rights view, positive law view of the Fourth Amendment is that insofar as our lives as private citizens, I mean, some of you I'm sure work for the government, but right now you're private citizens, insofar as our lives are delineated by where we can go and what we can do by laws that are passed and maintained by states, such as how high above someone's property you can fly a drone or whether or not you can collect their DNA or how you're stalking them. Insofar as those laws determine where we can go, they should also determine where state actors can go generally. And when state actors pierce into, the, into areas, when they go into areas that normal people aren't allowed to go, they need to have reasonableness or a warrant. This is the general concept of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment is a little bit different than the other parts of the Bill of Rights. It doesn't tell you that you can't, the government agents can't do something. It it, unlike Congress shall make no law, or there shall be no excessive bail, or, or the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It tells you how government agents need to go about doing something that is presumptively wrong if anyone else did it. It's presumptively wrong for me to go into your house, search it, and take some of your stuff away. It'd be presumptively wrong for government agents to do it unless they have reasonableness or probable cause. Now the next question, or warrant, probable, and the next question is when do they need that? And it's when they go to places that we are not allowed to go. The Fifth Amendment describes taking slots. It doesn't say your government can't take your property. It says if it's going to do it, it has to do it this way. What this realizes is that when the state agents do something that is presumptively immoral, they're going to let them do it if they follow these strictures, and it's a source of legitimacy of state action, which is why it's important to use positive law for the Fourth Amendment. It may seem strange to say that 
the strictures of the Fourth Amendment should be determined by different states' laws about whether or not you can fly a drone or not or collect DNA. That may seem strange to say, but it's no stranger to say, stranger than saying that the takings clause is determined by state property law. Some states have mineral rights of a certain sort. Some states have different rights in, uh, in tenant landlord law. And whether or not they take those literal property, riparian property, whether or not that's taken determines upon analyzing state law. This is what Justice Gorsuch decided in his dissent. It's time to relook at all of this. And it's, not, it's important to relook at it not just as a matter that we could start protecting our records, not by the values and policy judgments of judges who say, hmm, is that a reasonable expectation of privacy? I'm not sure. Should you expect privacy in that? It seems like a policy judgment. Have the legislator pass laws that say you have privacy in your records held by Google. And after that law is passed, it means that state actors going into that area need to get a warrant in order to pierce that area. Same with drones, same with DNA, same with all the technology coming in the future that the legislator can move faster than a judge sitting on a bench thinking about whether or not you have a reason of privacy. So Gorsuch's dissent, I consider to be his first salvo in what will be a career-long battle against existing Fourth Amendment doctrine that I hope to engage with. There are many open questions to be done, but now litigants are going to be briefing those issues to the court so we can start working through what this will mean, and it'll be exciting to watch in the future where this goes. Thank you very much. Final article. I do want to note that uh, one of the districts in, at issue in one of the cases was described as having a shape like a broken wing pterodactyl. I mention this not because I think it's especially important, but because I have a five-year-old son who loves dinosaurs, and I want to be able to tell him that we talked about pterodactyls. <laughs> well, th thank you, Clark. I will get to that uh, district and more uh, in due time. But I wanted to start in a different place. Last week, uh, Justice Elena Kagan gave an interview uh, at a Brooklyn day school uh, with journalist Dahlia Lithwick, and she had a lot of interesting things to say, which I think lead us directly to the doorstep of several cases we've talked about today, but especially the gerrymandering cases. So I'll quote from some of the coverage. Um, the, the justice said, people viewing the judiciary as legitimate is part of the marvel of the third branch of government, but it's fragile. People can lose that faith in unelected, pretty old justices. If we lose that, she said, we're losing something incredibly important to American constitutional democracy. And she went on to say, this is a dangerous time for the court because people see us as an extension of the political process. It's dangerous, she said, because if in big cases, divisions follow ineluctably from political divisions. You have to try as hard as you can, she continued, to find ways to avoid 5-4 decisions quote, by taking big questions and making them small. <clears throat> and she said the court had recently had good practice at that. Sometimes, she conceded, it had a ridiculous air to it. You'll hear more about the ridiculous later. Uh, since we left the big thing that had to be decided out there, left it to next year, we kept on talking until we achieved consensus, and Chief Justice Roberts gets huge credit for that, she said. Now, you've been hearing all day about cases where the court, uh, this last term or two, decided on a narrow basis. Uh, you've heard about Masterpiece Cake Shop, where uh, Kagan and Breyer joined with the conservatives to go off on a different basis of decision that was less controversial. Uh, you've heard about Lucia, where uh, Kagan took over and assembled a majority for a narrow decision on something that could have had explosive implications for separation of powers and uh, presidential power. Uh, you've heard about the 
travel ban cases where uh, Kagan and Breyer um, uh, did not take the strong liberal dissent uh, that Sotomayor and Ginsburg did, but a narrow and reasonable and, and close one. And, but I, I would argue in no cases uh, was uh, she living up more to her advice uh, than in the, uh, and, and did the entire court live up to it, than in these gerrymandering cases. Now, you may remember that they were teed up as among the most controversial and specifically the most partisanly controversial cases of the entire year. There were a lot of people who said that American democracy hung in the balance, that we can't really be said to be a, a democratic country unless the court rules one way. Uh, it was all set up to be the next uh, uh, Citizens United. And so what emerges from the court on that uh, day very late in the term, but uh, two cases that are unanimous as to result. In the Maryland case, they didn't even bother to sign it. It was per curiam. Uh, and in which the concurrences, such as they were, were quite cordial. Everyone agreed. The cases went away, at least for a year. Now, there is, of course, more to the story of how they dodged all the merits and how they found a narrow little strip of land to stand on. Um, and it goes back at least 30 years. Um, if you want the uh, full rendition of cases, please read my article in the Cato Supreme Court Review. But I'm going to jump into the action uh, in 2004. By that point, the court had already agreed for uh, more than a decade that the Equal Protection Clause of the US Constitution um, has something to say about partisan gerrymandering. Now, I'm going to read the audience as knowing already what partisan gerrymandering is. That's why I did not bring my beautiful pictures of the pterodactyl with its broken wings, uh, the picture from Pennsylvania of Donald Duck kicking Goofy, um, which was, yes, you, you can actually see the, in, 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 in Frederick County, where I live, uh, you look at what the Maryland legislature did, and you see, I swear, at the head of the Grinch from Dr. Seuss in outline. Um, and I won't even show a picture of the North Carolina district, uh, incredibly long and incredibly thin. That sounds like the president. Um, the, in, in, so, so strung out uh, to, to connect the urban areas of, of several North Carolina cities, um, and, and with su such a, a taffy-like uh, needle of land in between that uh, one of the politicians in North Carolina said, you know, if you drove that, through that whole district with your car doors open, you'd kill everyone in it. <laughs> that, that, so no, no pictures. I'll leave that to your imagination. But in 2004, you got uh, the showdown that, um, uh, that we were uh, proceeding from in the, uh, this term's cases. And it was called Beath versus Jubilera. It was from Pennsylvania. Uh, and the court split four to four to um, smiling Buddha-like in the middle, Justice Anthony Kennedy won. And it was intellectually very polarized. Uh, on the liberal side, uh, there was uh, a strong view that the court should stick with the project of providing some constitutional remedy under the Equal Protection Clause, even though previous litigation had not done very well at figuring out what kind of uh, remedies uh, were, were owed. On the conservative side, Justice Scalia said, uh, no, uh, even though the court has said that there is a constitutional violation, it's time to give up on it being justiciable and one for which there is a remedy. And the reason is, he said, the, uh, 
it would draw the court too much into political questions. Uh, we have just had, he said, more than a decade of litigation under the court's very uncertain standards. Uh, it has led to tons of litigation, tons of inconvenience uh, to people who have to run elections, and yet almost no actual relief. Almost no uh, map had actually been struck down by a federal court as a partisan gerrymander. So he said, uh, not only have we not found the right standard, but we never will. It's time to give up. Uh, it may be unconstitutional, but it should be for the political branches to iron out. Well, there was Justice Kennedy in the, in the middle, um, uh, refusing to close the door entirely, agreeing that the court had found no standard that worked, and so Pennsylvania was home free, even though it had a pretty bad gerrymander, um, but saying that uh, time may yet yield better proposals for remedies, let's not close the door. Uh, and I'll quote his opinion at some length because it turned out to be the target that everyone was shooting at uh, this last term. Kennedy said, if some limited and precise rationale were found uh, using comprehensive and neutral principles uh, rooted in constitutional provisions, uh, and also if there were some rules by which the judges would not keep sliding down the slope forever but would limit their intervention, um, in order to prevent the evils of courts jumping in too headlong. Those two evils broadly are uh, having too much to do because there are so many potential disputes. There are like 7,000 state legislative districts. There are uh, 435 congressional, but there are also all those city councils, all those county councils. Uh, they could see this coming. They couldn't restrict their constitutional relief to just uh, congressional districts. They were either in for the whole tens of thousands of districts uh, or they were uh, staying out. He said um, it would have to prevent disputes from multiplying beyond reason, and it would also have to prevent disparate and inconsistent results where you would get different answers depending on which court you went to. The courts, he said, in that case would wind up having shouldered political, not legal responsibility, and their legitimacy would suffer. So that was what <coughs> Kennedy said, and that touched off more than a decade of looking for what kind of case, what kind of proposed principles would satisfy him uh, with those um, uh, requirements. And uh, some years passed, and a couple of political scientists came up with something called the efficiency gap. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain the efficiency gap, because it's really complicated. And it doesn't track your intuitions, or even uh, a political philosopher's intuitions, as to what is going on in elections. Nonetheless, they said, um, it serves a couple of very practical functions for courts. Uh, by setting up a 7% uh, tripwire of how different the um, statewide outcomes are from uh, the way the voters voted, uh, it tends to uh, separate on one side of the line a lot of stuff that everyone kind of knows was a partisan gerrymander from a lot of other stuff that probably was more innocent and that would pass. Uh, it keeps the courts from being endlessly involved because most maps will not trigger that particular thing. So there's kind of a guarantee that you're not going to have to second guess uh, most maps and also not most districts because you notice that with the efficiency gap test, uh, applies to statewide uh, maps. It is not a way of coming in and challenging a single district without uh, calculating what's going on statewide. Well, this was soon introduced by the very same um, uh, scholar who had written the main article. He popped up as the lawyer for Wisconsin Democratic plaintiffs and uh, 
they, in fact, convinced the court, which said, yep, we uh, accept the efficiency gap test. It is just what uh, Dr. Kennedy ordered, and uh, Wisconsin's gerrymander is hereby struck down. Inevitably, that was going to go on uh, certiorari to the court, and it did. Um, the more of a surprise was what happened in my own state of Maryland, and I will put in my uh, disclaimer here, which is that I was involved uh, in a state panel to recommend better uh, redistricting methods. We stayed out of the litigation, no connection there. Um, nonetheless, Maryland's gerrymander had been challenged. It was uh, uh, not getting relief or much relief from the courts. Uh, they asked uh, for a preliminary injunction, which they didn't get. They took it to the Supreme Court and it granted cert. So it had two cases instead of one. Now that was significant but, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, the Maryland case was being argued not on equal protection, which is where the court had always been, but on First Amendment retaliation. The idea was that people in Western Maryland in uh, uh, the uh, area that had been flipped by the gerrymander had been punished for the way they voted. Uh, and Justice Kennedy had specifically welcomed First Amendment retaliation theories in the previous case. Secondly, by taking two cases, the court was taking one uh, for, uh, in which each party was guilty. The, the Republicans were the guilty party in Wisconsin, the Democrats were the guilty party in Maryland. Um, more political legitimacy, conceivably, if they did it that way. So, Oral argument did not go well for the challengers, uh, and the stay um, uh, that, they, um, that, that, that the state of Wisconsin wanted was granted two important signals that the court was not on board with what was going on. And um, to understand why, uh, there's one reference point that I urge you to consider, which is uh, all of the justices were well aware of the one area in which they had uh, jumped in on constitutional grounds to electoral process, uh, and it had a, a huge success, which is the one-person, one-vote cases. Um, if you look back, the actual constitutional basis for those was a little bit rickety, as Judge Bork and others pointed out, but the actual results were incredibly successful. The resistance at the state level disappeared almost immediately. Everyone accepted the legitimacy uh, of the new system. Uh, litigation um, uh, almost vanished. And the reason is that the one-person, one-vote formulas were mechanical. They were objective predictable, uh, easily understood by the populace, readily applied by judges, and neutral. Count the people, divide by the number of districts. There you go, you're done. Um, you got the same answer from a Republican judge as you would have gotten from a Democratic judge. And indeed, there was no need to litigate cases once people understood that. And there was such a gap, to coin a word, uh, between what was being urged in uh, the Wisconsin case and something as predictable and knowable as that. And that's why the expert testimony that came in showing how uh, the efficiency gap uh, the uh, standard could possibly be gamed through uh, you know, strategic use of uh, which candidates to run in which districts, uh, in, in which um, uh, selection of when to begin and when to end the snapshot uh, might affect the, the outcome. This was enough to raise considerable doubt as to whether or not it shared uh, all of these things, aside from the fact that no one could really explain what it was. So what did the court do? On the Wisconsin case, uh, 
they completely avoided everything that I've just said for the last couple of minutes about the uh, defects of the proposed standard. And instead, they said, uh, you didn't get the standing quite right. You should have made sure that you had a plaintiff who lived in the affected districts that you were challenging. Go back and do it that way, and then we'll hear from you next year. Um, in the Maryland case, they said, you're just asking for a preliminary injunction. Now, we're not going to get deep into the questions of when people are entitled to preliminary injunctions. We're just going to observe that the relief you could get next year is going to be just as good because you couldn't have changed the election this year and a few other reasons. So for this day and trip only, here's a ticket to uh, go back and litigate more in the, the Maryland courts. Uh, so it would have been hard to find narrower grounds. And they kicked it, well, how far did they kick it? Maybe only for one year because both those cases are still alive and both of them might be back in front of the court next year. And if they aren't, then other ones do too. Um, were they thinking about the composition of the court? Did they know or suspect or guess that Justice Kennedy uh, might be gone and replaced or as the case may be not replaced by a new justice? <sighs> that it would be speculation, so of course I will avoid it. But I will say that <clears throat> As on a number of the other controversies that have reached the court this year, uh, the bluebird of happiness might turn out to be in the backyard of the legislature itself. Because not only can the states and should the states reform gerrymandering, and I'm, I'm involved as a libertarian in trying to get libertarians interested in uh, gerrymandering reform, but Article 1, Section 4 of the US Constitution specifically contemplates that the US Congress can step in, uh, at least as to congressional uh, districts, quote, the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and, repre and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof that they get the first uh, uh, pick. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. Um, and that means to me that Congress has uh, a, an enumerated power to do something about gerrymandering for the House of Representatives. And I hope it uses it. Thank you. Walter, uh, I'm going to exercise the moderator's privilege to ask a single, I think, short question of each uh, panelist, and then we'll take your questions from the audience. I'm going to go in reverse order and, and make an observation to Walter, followed by a question. Um, it, it seems to me that the court clearly hopes that the, the political branches will, will help to solve this problem so it doesn't have to keep coming back. Um, I, particularly in this day and age, I, I find that if the question is whether uh, both sides in a political a uh, dispute like this will put down their swords and, and behave like true statesmen and women, the safe bet is usually no. Um, but I find myself kind of uncharacteristically sanguine about the chances that this might, uh, if not get completely fixed, that there might be some improvement um, through the political process and not the courts. Would you share that uh, viewpoint? I, and I can't explain why, so I'm curious if you share that view. Uh to, there are two tracks, of course, for reform. There's the state track, and we have seen very significant reform in about a dozen states, um, followed by, uh, aside from, it started on the West Coast. Uh, Ohio has done it recently. Michigan now has a ballot initiative. I will say that this has been heartening progress, but it tends to be in the states that have strong initiative and referendum, because that is what holds the incumbents' feet to the fire, is fear that the voters will do it for them if they don't step in. A lot of states do not have strong initiative and referendum. So that's where we've been going on the state level. On the, uh, the uh, congressional level, 
in a way, it has been heartening that the National Democratic Party has taken such a strong interest, um, uh, something they did not do during the many years when the amount of offense was more balanced on each side. You know, now it's the Republicans who are the incumbents. The Democrats have discovered just how outrageous the process is. But um, as I say, I take some hope because at some point, they may remember that they rightly raised this as a national issue, and that might get uh, a majority I'm sure I won't like some things that a Democratic Congress will do, but they might do something good on this. Right. Trevor, uh, I'd like to pick up on the point that you made, I think, very eloquently in, in the article, and, and you, you touched on at the end of your talk, which is that um, from one perspective, uh, a police officer who is, for example, searching a home, um, the only thing that makes that police officer different than a, than a burglar from a legal standpoint uh, is the legitimacy, if any, that the Constitution confers on that activity. Um, it's either a constitutional search, in which case um, it's permissible, and, or it's not, in which case it's not only illegal, but perhaps immoral as well. And of course, we've had a, point, a very poignant reminder of that fact. Um, uh, the police officer who uh, shot a man in his own apartment in Dallas, uh, claiming that she had gone to the wrong door and, and, and thought that her house was being uh, burgled. And my question is whether... Um, it, whether it is your view that Smith and Katz and perhaps other legal doctrines as well have contributed to kind of a mentality of uh, entitlement and disrespect on the part of law enforcement, that they really do think that they're above the law in some ways or at least above common morality of the, of the kind that you suggested earlier. And I'm put in mind of a wonderful quote from a, an author named Ring Lardner um, who has a character, uh, I believe his son asks him a question and the father responds, shut up, he explained. And so sometimes that's how I see the government when it comes to these Fourth Amendment cases. What, what business do you have collecting my DNA or, or po poking around in my house or following me around using my cell site location information? Shut up, they explained. Oh, that's a great question. I think that's absolutely true. Um, the nature of the CATS test means that the cops can't really look to anything to decide whether or not they need a warrant. So they can push it as much as they want. So when this happened in like the Sorallo case and the Florida v. Riley case where first it was going to get a plane and fly it over someone's house to search it and they said yes and then okay they could get a helicopter and fly it 400 feet and search their house uh, and they said yes but the cops were just the, the it incentivized them to push as far as they possibly can as opposed to going to a statute book and being like well can a normal person fly a, a helicopter over someone's house and surveil it from there and using that as a jumping off point that's both objective and deals with the policy measures uh, uh, that the legislator and the people can get involved with. And, I, and the, you also get the benefit of thinking about police officers as I think we should think about them, that, that they're clothed in authority, but if they violate your rights, if they come into your house and take your stuff without reasonableness, probable cause, or warrant, they are basically thieves, which is the way that common law considered them. Common law, there was no qualified immunity at common law. You, you, you proceed against them as if they were just a person who came into your house on a tort uh, claim for conversion or theft or whatever. And that was, that was how you, if, and the only thing that made their defense in response to that was to claim immunity based on doing it in concordance with the strictures of the Fourth Amendment, for example, after that, after the Fourth Amendment was written. That was their only defense to say, no, I get the special exemption from, from the general moral principle that trespass and, and searching someone's property is not allowed for everyone. I get the special exception because I did it in accordance with this. Uh, and so it's another way to bring res some respect back to, as you work on qualified immunity, this, a property-centric view of the Fourth Amendment could help 
define that better too. Thank you. And then Josh, um, <laughs> as you may know, it's a, it's a sort of a shtick in, in movies. Um, there's a sort of plot device where one of the characters will have been hypnotized at some point during their life, uh, and then when the, the code word is uttered, you know, the, something happens that triggers them. Lochner. Yeah, well, for me, uh, for me as someone who litigated uh, the constitutional cases, libertarian constitutional cases for the Institute for Justice, it's rational basis review, and I go into a complete foaming rage when I hear that, that term, and, and you mentioned... It's true. You mentioned in your article that they, the, uh, the Supreme Court applied the most deferential form of rational basis review, which is sometimes described as the Williamson v. Lee optical version that applies to economic liberty uh, cases and others. And my question for you is, um, can you imagine any application of this policy, of the, of the travel ban policy that, that might, and I'm gonna use a term of art here, conceivably have flunked a rational basis review? Or was, it, was this just in the, yeah. you know, yeah. was the game fixed? Um, the court applied two standards of review in the Trump case. First, they applied a case called uh, Mandel, right? Kleindienst versus Mandel. This is a case from the 70s. And the court seems to suggest that the standard of review in Mandel is below rational basis. So, Clark, you can imagine, you know, what's colder than cold? I, what's more... <laughs> at that point, you know, Scalia had a standard that's stupid but constitutional. It's just stupid and constitutional, right? <laughs> at that point, the test is, unless we have evidence, the president said, I am banning these people because they are Muslims and I hate Muslims, it would pass. I believe I, that test is expressed with uh, the symbol square root of negative one. Yes, yes, the, the, the imaginary test. Right. But even under... Williamson uh, v. Lee optical rational basis test, I still don't think this policy would flunk. The government produced a you know, 75 page report explaining why this is necessary. Uh, contrast that with some of the cases that Clark litigated, my favorite ones, the florist, they said uh, infected dirt, was that the reason why? That was a rational basis according to the court. To why, why Louisiana can regulate florists. So even though I think the reasons are probably stupid, and may not have been the actual reasons, they put forward far more than a conceivable basis. But again, I think this is an indictment not of Trump so much, but of the, the actual legal framework. I think the legal framework itself is flawed, and Congress should require a specific showing of harm to justify this denial of entry. And they should perhaps put a time limit saying you can deny entry for X days, and then you gotta get congressional permission. There are lots of things that Congress can do that they should do, but they haven't, and there's no interest in doing it now. So whether it's gerrymandering or the Fourth Amendment or God qualified, Congress could kill qualified immunity tomorrow. It's a statute. 1983 is a statute. Just modify the statute and just say we don't apply whatever standard of qualified immunity. Just It, it can be done overnight. Uh, but instead, we have to litigate these things for the next 20 years. But Clark, Clark will do it. It's a bit of a How do you modify a statute to not include something it doesn't already include? Uh, That's a question for later. All right. Of negative one. <laughs> so um, we're going to take questions from the audience now. Just a few things to um, keep in mind. Please wait until we have microphones. Uh, please wait until one gets to you so that everybody who's listening online can hear your question. Uh, also, uh, please um, announce your name and affiliation if so inclined. I'm going to start near the back, gentleman with the white hair and the blue shirt in the middle section. Uh, <clears throat> Jim Duholm, no affiliation. This uh, question is addressed to uh, Walter. Uh, the, the Constitution requires uh, redistricting every 10 years. Um, a problem that exists during that 10 years will cease to exist unless there's a uh, unified party control of the legislative and the uh, uh, the governor uh, gu gubernatorial offices. Uh, 
it would there probably be two or three elections that would go by before courts could intervene, uh, even if there's uniform unified political control ten years out. Changes in population will probably require change in the districts. Don't all those facts argue that this is really a non-justiciable issue that should be left to the political process? Well, that was certainly part of the argument that uh, Scalia um, uh, and uh, the other three uh, accepted was that the uh, useless churning, as it seemed to them, of the previous 15 years or so of, of litigation uh, had often been caused by exactly those sorts of factors, which is that uh, courts did not want to do something as drastic based on a single snapshot of who got elected in one uh, round. And yet, by the time they were beginning to feel confident of what was going on, the next census was approaching and the urgency was, was changing. Um, often partisan changes in control will... Um, uh, alleviate the problem, although uh, two things. First, some states just have a dominant party uh, who then manages to uh, get more than uh, seems fair by extreme gerrymanders of the, of the state that they dominate. Secondly, in investigating gerrymandering, I found uh, that it goes on for... Uh, all sorts of different reasons other than, quote, partisan gerrymandering, Republican versus Democrat. For example, uh, it's common as dirt for a bipartisan legislature to carve things up so that all the incumbents benefit and no challengers ever win. Well, yeah, that's, uh, is that judiciable? Again, uh, some of the same questions apply. Um, and uh, the focus that we've had over the last year in the national debate on partisan gerrymandering tends to obscure uh, many of the most effective ways. For example, uh, in our Maryland um, uh, commission, we found that one of the main ways gerrymandering was used was to keep party discipline within the majority party by threatening uh, mavericks and dissidents with being given bad districts. That's not so much partisan gerrymandering, uh, and yet it is something that... It would be nice if there were a remedy. I, again, I specifically did not come down on whether there was a remedy or not, but I can see why they keep looking. Gentleman in the white shirt and the blue tie. Uh, my name is Bill Hagan. I have no affiliation. It's for uh, Professor Blackman regarding the travel ban. There are two things that I was curious that never really seemed to get much attention when it was being discussed. I don't know if they were the cases. One is, I, I remember I first heard it referred to as a, as a Muslim ban. And then when I heard the countries, I realized they didn't have Turkey, Egypt, Indonesia, and a number of other countries. And I looked in my almanac, <coughs> a table of top 20 countries by Muslim population, and about 90% of Muslims worldwide were unaffected. Those countries were totally unaffected. So it seemed calling it a Muslim ban didn't seem to make any sense. And the second thing is um, these countries were already identified by either legislation or by the Obama administration as countries that were potentially dangerous because they had uh, there was civil war, there was no central government, there were multiple central governments. And that never seemed to be an issue as to why these countries were selected. And I, I agree with you. I'm not sure the policy makes, any, makes us any safer. Makes us, but it just seemed curious that those two points never seemed to take much precedence in the arguments. Thank you. If this was designed to be Muslim bland, a Muslim bland, a Muslim ban, it was a pretty poor Muslim ban. It only focused on six nations which were uh, torn by war. A couple of them were state sponsors of terror, Iran, for example. Um, there were lots of good reasons why if you were instituting a travel ban, you'd pick these countries. Now, what about Saudi Arabia? 
We have pretty good relations with Saudi Arabia. Maybe we have various diplomatic channels to prevent these sorts of uh, problems from happening post 9-11. I don't know. Under any sort of rational basis test, this is just fine. But the plaintiffs want to apply domestic establishment clause case, which I didn't even mention, a case called McCreary County. This is a case where you, they posted a copy of the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. So they said, well, on its face, there's nothing wrong with having the Ten Commandments, but it's based on this anti or pro-Christian uh, uh, bias. And what the plaintiff said is we have to apply strict scrutiny here, right? Scrutiny. Apply strict scrutiny, and we say that because of this evidence of Trump's statements and this anti-Muslim animus, it taints what's otherwise a facially legitimate action, right? That President Obama announced that these six countries had a ban, open fine, but they focus on Trump's animus. And here's a key point. The court did not apply domestic establishment clause precedents. I've been arguing at the top of my lungs for two years. They don't apply to immigration. We issue visas to priests, uh, the preachers, right? We issue special visa classifications if you are a priest. If you're a Unitarian minister who's part-time, good luck. You're not getting a, a visa. But if you are a full-time priest, you're getting a visa, right? Our immigration laws are infected, depends who you ask, by religious animus, religious bias. So there's no reason to carve out the travel ban from that uh, regime. Yes. There's a microphone on its way to you. No, that's right. <laughs> We're online people, too. Thanks a lot. Uh, my name is Jim Calderwood. Walter, how are you? And my question is for Walter Olson. Um, the, uh, I've never quite understood the, the partisan gerrymandering argument from those who are trying to uh, have, uh, have the Supreme Court declare it uh, a, 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 a constitutional right. Uh, we have in Maryland a Republican governor, but the state is overwhelmingly Democrat in registration. Same thing for Massachusetts, a Republican governor, overwhelmingly registration. Uh, North Dakota, Democrat senator, overwhelmingly a Republican registration. There are many examples of this sort of thing around the country where clearly Republicans are voting for Democrats, Democrats are voting for Republicans. Well, we, we have one person, one vote. Uh, so I've never understood that argument because clearly there's a lot of people. And as you said, people particularly, and I've seen it in Maryland, and I'm sure it's in other states, where in the primaries can be the most important thing. I've had a number of people, as an activist Maryland Republican, I've had a number of people say they register as a Democrat because that's where the action is if you're going to vote for county executive or, or you're going to vote for the county or, or you're going to vote for the state legislature. Uh, so they register as a Democrat so they can vote. There were disputes in the last primary in Maryland at the polling places because people who are registered Democrats wanted to vote for Trump. And they were mad when they got in there and found out they couldn't. The second part, Walter, uh, real quick, is my understanding, and I read an article about this, and I'm asking you if it's true, that when the Republicans took over in a number of states, redrew the lines, and they were engaged in packing, uh, putting as many uh, Democrats as they could find in just particular Democrat, uh, particular districts, but that resulted in a lot more African-Americans being elected to state legislatures than when the white Democrats were the ones drawing the lines. I don't know if that's true or not, but those are my questions, Walter. Well, my, my next 20 minutes will be devoted to answering. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've, I've got to uh, make it telegraphic. Uh, I've, yeah, I've got, got to make it telegraphic. Um, 
the fact that people do not consistently vote a party line uh, is one of the interesting variables. And I urge people to read Sandra Day O'Connor's um, dissent in an earlier case uh, as the only modern justice who had electoral experience in a state legislature, or I believe electoral experience at all. She brought her own perspective, and one of them was that the... Um, uh, the partisan lines often are not capturing the important political polarities in a state and that, uh, as she said, if you uh, bring in the equal protection clause for Republican versus Democratic protection, you are probably going to wind up having to bring it in for one faction of the Democrats versus another faction of the Democrats protection, making it all much more complicated to provide relief. So some of that is a good reason for caution there. Uh, I would only say with regard to, and therefore there isn't really such a thing as gerrymandering, uh, believe in it, I've seen it done. And you and I living in Maryland, um, we have a, a map that will not uh, withstand a straight face. Uh, and at oral argument, in fact, you had much hilarity among the justices saying, you know, look at that. We, you know, we've never seen anyone try to get away with stuff as bad as the Maryland legislature did. I believe them. They're right. Now, I, I'll send off the last point because it's too big to get to do justice to here on, um, uh, and it's discussed at more length in my my Cato Supreme Court article, which is, yes, um, it has been known for a long time that maps that are uh, favorable to minority representation also tend to be favorable to Republican representation because they are drawing off uh, high concentrations of Democratic voters. Uh, the court has uh, got its own racial gerrymandering body of jurisprudence, which occasionally intersects with the partisan one. Um, it means that there's a lot of uh, mixed motive, as I call it, gerrymandering. There is gerrymandering that uh, is being sold as Voting Rights Act compliance, but is actually pro-Republican, uh, or sometimes vice versa. I'll leave it there. I think we got time for one more question. Let's make it a cat's question to get Trevor uh, into the discussion. Devin. My question. Sorry. So, um, my name and affiliation. Uh, my, my name is Devin Watkins. I'm from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I uh, wanted to ask Trevor about um, uh, Carpenter. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh had written a piece upholding. The, uh, the NSA spying program. And during his confirmation, he described Carpenter as a game changer to his opinion. I'm just wondering, given the fact that I thought it upheld Smith, how the NSA cases might be different because of Carpenter. That's a great question. I, I, don't, I don't agree with Judge Kavanaugh that it is a game changer to what his opinion uh, would be. So the question that Carpenter brings up is, is it a search? Uh, it, you see, I read you the paragraph, the, what I called the Heller paragraph, that it doesn't touch any of that stuff. So that that's a, you can drive kind of any national security justification through there, which is exactly what Judge Kavanaugh wants to do. If you look at his opinion in Clayman v. Obama, he says, I don't think NSA spying is a search because of the third party doctrine, but even if it were a search, and he wrote this unnecessarily, by the way, even if it were a search, uh, it would be justified because of terrorism so by the special needs doctrine, which is the same thing that lets them do random sobriety checkpoints. Uh, so he he doesn't actually care if it's a search, which uh, which I think is the most concerning thing about him. All right, um, that takes us to the end of the panel. Two things. Uh, we're going to have a 15-minute break now. Uh, refreshments are available out in the Winter Garden on the first floor. There are rest restrooms by the elevators and also one level down. You can take the stairs or the elevator down if you need the restrooms on the last floor um, or the bottom floor. And please, everybody, if you would join me in thanking Walter and Trevor and Josh for a great panel. <laughs>